Hi, this is Eddie Hedges, and you're listening to On Faith's Edge with Joe Taylor. I will submit that a person's faith is a very weak faith if he cannot challenge and look for truth from God. Thank you, Eddie Hedges, for the introduction. Eddie is from my hometown, Cincinnati, Ohio. He is a founding member of the multi-platinum band Blessed Union of Souls. He came onto the show at episode 93. We talked a lot about his time with Blessed Union of Souls and why he left the band at the peak of their, at the peak of their popularity. Eddie is uh, back with uh, some of the members of Blessed Union of Souls with a project called Blessed Reunion. You know the songs from Blessed Union of Souls. Uh, I Believe, Light Your Eyes, uh, Hey Leonardo, great, great band. I'm a big fan of Eddie Hedges and uh, just love his music. Our conversation can be found at episode 93 at onfaithsedge.com slash 93. Well, hello. Welcome to the 123rd episode of On Faith Sedge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Today, I have Dr. Ron Bracey on the show. He's a retired minister, a sought-after conference speaker. He served in the U.S. Air Force for 42 years. He's a veteran of the Vietnam War where he flew 183 combat missions. He was on duty in the Pentagon on 9-11, and his only son, Todd, was killed in Afghanistan. Ron has seen his fair share of tragedy. In his book, Walk On, From the Valley of Despair to the Mountaintop of Praise, Ron uses the writings of the ancient Hebrew prophet Habakkuk as a roadmap to guide us out of the valley of despair. In our conversation, we ask, does God want us to question him? How can God be a good God by allowing suffering and tragedy? And why does praise play a significant role and overcoming despair. 183 combat missions in Vietnam. Ron, rescue missions at the Pentagon on 9-11. Thank you so much for your service, my friend. It's been a, a journey that God has taken me on all these years, and uh, it's it's been uh, a good life that he has given me. We're going to talk about your book, of course, Walk On, but brother, you have sacrificed a great deal for our country as a patriot and a believer in God, I thank God for men who are willing to uh, serve our country and serve humanity like you've had. You've certainly sacrificed a great deal, including your your own son to combat. Tell us about Todd. Todd was a, a joy to have as a son. Uh, he was very well liked by, uh, by people. We, in fact, I just got an email the other day from uh, one of the men that he had served with while he was uh, still alive and that man was telling me about the relationship he had and others had with Todd. He was a special operations pilot which means we never knew where he was until after he would come back from a mission and so when he was killed uh, in Albania we had no idea where he was at that time. He fought uh, flew combat missions during the Iraqi war in fact person wanted to read about that. He flew the longest low-level combat mission since World War II, and a major factor in, in the ultimate defeat of uh, the Iraqis at that time. And he survived that war, and then he was still flying during the war on terror and was uh, flying a mission 
there in Albania when when he and his crew were killed. On behalf of a grateful country and a grateful man here, thank you for your sacrifice. You have written a book, Walk On, From the Valley of Despair to the Mountaintop of Praise. Ron, tell us about your book. Well, I wrote the book for every person in this world. It's not written at a or aimed at a particular reader group. It was written because to everybody, because every person has one thing in common in that we all at one time or another will will deal with despair in our life. It may come from losing a job. It may come from losing a child or a spouse uh, to death. Uh, it can come during a long illness, uh, a divorce. Uh, the many factors that we deal with on a daily life, the reality of evil, the despair that comes through events like the, the shoot, various shootings, mass shootings, we all deal with those at one way or another. And so I wrote the book to deal with that area of our life. But what's interesting about it is the, the person I use is the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, only three chapters in the Bible, and yet he is the epitome, the model example of a person that is dealing with despair and asking the questions that result from despair. We all ask the same question, why me? Why did this evil happen? And then we will, the follow-on question will be, well, why, God, did you let this happen? Uh, why? Do you allow evil to exist? Why do you let pain and suffering come into people's lives? And Habakkuk, as, as his book opens, that's what he is talking about. And it's apparent as you study the book that he has been dealing with this for many years, and he hasn't gotten an answer from God. And so that's how the story begins. And so I, I wrote the book to explain his story. As you read the book, you'll find it's intertwined with life stories from many people that I've dealt with throughout my life, experiencing that same issue of despair and how do they come through that. And Habakkuk's book gives us the answers that God is in control, even though sometimes he's silent and we can't, we don't understand what's going on. He's still working. And if we'll just walk in faith and trust, which may take a long time, that he will ultimately bring us. Uh, through that valley and bring us to a point of where we can be on quote what I call the mountaintop of praise, which is really the ultimate experience of trusting God. So you used Habakkuk as as the uh, foundation for Walk On. It's really interesting that you use this book because when most Christians think about uh, a book about despair and agony and why God, they automatically turn to the book of Job. Why did you pick Habakkuk over Job? Not that this is any kind of tragedy or despair competition of the Bible, but, uh, right. you know, we all think about Job and we don't think a lot about Habakkuk. And I, and I think you're right. Habakkuk probably better represents what God's intentions are. Uh, but why did you, why did you pick Habakkuk over, over Job? What was the, what was the leading there? Well, I think, uh, the book actually started and this may surprise people. I actually started writing the book in 1989. A local newspaper in a town where I was pastor, a pastor of a church, they asked me to write a, a three-week series for their newspaper. And I had been studying Habakkuk ever since I had been 
almost as a Christian myself, and then in seminary, uh, studying it. And the thing that connected that connects me with Habakkuk is that he questioned God. He did not accept what his faith taught him. He did not accept uh, traditional answers. Uh, he, he did not uh, accept uh, uh, what I call pat answers. He was willing to challenge God uh, and question God. And I, and I say he's much like a prosecuting attorney uh, questioning a, a defendant on the stand. That's what he does to God. He just asks him question after question. He doesn't believe God. In fact, God says, you're not going to believe me, Habakkuk. But this is what's going on until finally Habakkuk comes to a full understanding of God. But I grew up that way. Uh, probably my mother, she was a teacher. She taught me to question and to seek truth, uh, no matter where the questions took me, uh, to keep asking questions. And I do that today. I'm, I'm still that way. I won't accept a pat answer to anything. I want to know the whys and the reasons and, and where you got to that point in life. So I think that's what drove me to use Habakkuk, because he does it in a very clear way. One thing as Christians that I think we're afraid to do is question God and seek answers, not just, not just why, but how and what about me and this isn't right, God, this just doesn't seem fair, or, or even get angry at God. And your book shows, and, and the book of Habakkuk shows, that it's okay to do that, isn't it? It's okay. God wants us. God's okay with that. Uh, he is. In fact, as you read through the whole Bible, you will find the major characters that people think of when you start talking about the Bible you will find that every one of those main characters, in some way or another, they questioned God as to why he was doing something. Sadly, what many of them do, uh, did, and what we do is we will do it our own way. Instead of following the way God has suggested for us to follow in his book, and that is what we ultimately end up doing is questioning and disbelieving God. Habakkuk did that. Job does that. Most people think that Job was a patient person. Well, reread chapter three, in which he even says, I might as well not even have been born, God. Why is this happening? And so throughout Job, in a much longer discourse, he challenges God at the very point of, of the issues that Habakkuk deals with. And it's okay to do that. In fact, I will submit that a person's faith is a very weak faith if he cannot challenge and look for truths from God. That's a pretty powerful statement, Ron. In your opinion, a person's faith is weak if they cannot challenge God on where God wants to take them. Very strong point. Ron, I always say that my skepticism and my cynicism drive my faith. I question everything. And I'm almost forced on a daily basis to, to remind myself why I believe in God and why I, why I have faith in Jesus Christ. One point that I, that I still struggle with is how does God allow tragedy? So from your view, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow these terrible things to happen in this world to believers who have given their life to him 
to non-believers who he wants to bring closer to him? Well, that that is ultimately the question that we end up asking. But what we tend to forget is it was not that way in the beginning. The last verse of chapter one of Genesis, after all of creation has been created, God says he looked at his creation and he saw that it was very good. Chapter two is a continuation of that explanation of the creative process, particularly that of man and woman. And yet it is all still very good. And then comes chapter three. It begins in a very good, perfect world. But by the end of it, it results in separation from God and being driven out of that very good, perfect world. Why? Because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. He gave them a responsibility, and they decided to do it their own way in their yielding to temptation, to doing it their way. In fact, if you read the, the their response very carefully to their temptations from Satan, uh, it says that she uh, Eve wanted to be wise. She wanted to have the good things of life. And she saw that that was to eat of the fruit, to do it her way instead of doing it God's way. So we brought suffering into this world. It wasn't created that way. Did God allow it? Yes, because he made us in his image. And his image involves a will. And a will means you make decisions. And decisions is there is accountability for every decision that we make. So we can make good decisions today and experience the very goodness of God's creation, or we can make other decisions, and as a result, we will experience the consequences. Much of the pain and suffering that we experience are not the consequences of our own decisions, are not the consequences of our own actions, are not the consequences of of our own way of life, but they still happen to us, and God still allows us. What would you say to somebody, Ron, that would say, that's not a good God, that's not a loving God, to make me suffer for something that I had no part in? One of the ways I will come back on that answer is, well, let me share with you an experience of how God himself experienced the non-good, which he did not bring upon himself. And that was to watch his own son die on a cross, and he had done nothing in his life, Jesus, and yet God allowed him to take upon himself our wrong decisions, and even we see the despair in God because for three hours it said that God that the, the world turned dark, God turned away. Remember Jesus' cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is questioning God there himself. And God turned away because he could not look upon 
that pain and that suffering and that sin, and yet he allowed it to happen. It's no different. I mean, I could ask the question, (laughs) and believe you me, I've asked it of God many times, even still today. Why did Todd have to die? He died because all the way back there in the very beginning, the consequence, the course of life was set for all of us. When Adam and Eve made a decision to rebel against God. And the truth of the matter is, we do it every day in our own life. The, the family that's killed on the interstate by a drunk driver wasn't their fault, but it was the fault of somebody who violated God's way of life. Decisions always have a consequence. The goodness of God is that he provided a way for us to overcome that and to find a way of living life in a good way. But the question is always going to be there. And it becomes it comes back to a person, as Habakkuk had to say, Habakkuk, write the vision. It's going to come. It may take a while, but you're going to have to walk in faith and trust me. And as you read the last four verses of Habakkuk's book, you see that contradiction. Here's, here, let me just read what Habakkuk says. These are the last four verses, and they're two, two sections of two verses each. Habakkuk says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. There you see the despair that Habakkuk knows is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. And then here's what he says. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hind feet and makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk, as we know from his life, he experienced the total destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, the people being taken into captivity in Babylon. He experienced all of that. And yet he had come to the point of understanding who God was, that he could walk on in the midst of the tragedy. Let me tell you something. That's what I had to learn. For four years, After Todd's death, God was totally silent to me. But all I could do was just walk on that in the end, I could trust God. You teach us in this book that praise has a significant role in overcoming despair. Explain to us what you mean by that. To praise, you have to trust. If I am going to trust God, I have to acknowledge who he is, and I have to be willing to look at life through uh, his lens, uh, his eyes. And that comes from a person, that's where the, the element of believing in God is. Now, Scripture says, uh, if you want to experience 
eternal life through me. You must believe who I am. And then you must be willing to show that you believe who I am by living your life in a way that shows you trust me. You know, a parent and a child have that experience as they uh, come from birth to adult, uh, ultimately. That child trusts his father and his mother, uh, you know, in those early, early years. And that's what we have to do as a, as a Christian, as a believer. We have to have something to trust in. What do you put your trust in? That's a, a critical question for every person. You put your trust in money. 1929, stock market collapses, and what do people do? They jump out of buildings because they're, what they put their trust in has disappeared. Uh, you put your trust in fame. How long does fame last? You know, you may hit uh, all the home runs in the world. But then the next year you have a bad year and you get traded to another ball team. It's, what are you putting your trust in in life is what I challenge people with. Things that are going to disappear, are you going to put yourself in what proves to be an anchor of life and history has shown us through the lives of thousands, millions of people who have lived a life trusting God, even though it might take them into a Roman arena uh, with the early Christians or any other tragic event. How do you hope people are changed by your book? How do you hope people are changed by Walk On? Well, you know, I have had countless conversations with people who have come to me after they've read the book. Let me give you an example. A close friend of mine uh, is in the educational field like I am. I had said to this person, I said, after the book had come out, I said, hey, you might enjoy reading this. And uh, she said, Ron, she says, I'm so busy. I says, I don't have time to read. I says, well, Take a little bit of time out. Maybe you'll find time. Well, about three weeks later, she came to me and she said, Ron, yesterday, or this was during the week. She says, on Wednesday, I finished your book. She says it was just powerful. On Thursday, her husband, who was a vice president of a, corp of a company, was laid off. Remember in the book where I talk about the student who walks into the classroom not knowing that the professor on Friday had said there was going to be a test? He walks into the classroom. His classmate is praying and says, Lord, just guide us as we take this test. And he goes, what test? And his world crumbles. That's how quickly things can happen in our life. And this friend of mine, she said, Ron, she says, it was like it had prepared me for this event in our life, this major event. And I've had countless stories like that from people who have found themselves in the midst of a tragedy and have found the book uh, as a, a way of helping them get through it. Ron, your book is titled Walk On, and that has some significance. In fact, we heard in the verse that you read in Habakkuk, uh, the phrase walk on. 
But how do we do that? How do we walk on and keep our eye on God through all the tr- all, all the tragedy and suffering? Well, that's the, t- the lesson that Habakkuk had to learn. Uh, because in the second chapter, which is kind of the transition, the transition from the first chapter in which Habakkuk is challenging, questioning, uh, debating with God. And then in the last chapter, when he comes to the point of trusting God fully and walking on, the second chapter is a transition chapter in that it is there that God says to him, Habakkuk, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to uh, walk in faith. He had to keep his eye on God in walking this journey. And one of my favorite stories that I show in the book, it's, uh, it's on page 120. As a teacher, I attend as many athletic events and extracurricular events with my students as I can. There was a time in 2014, I was going with the track team to the district and the regional and the state finals for at the end of the year and at each one of those races uh the the district championship the regional championship and the state championship i noticed this one young female runner and it was in the 100 yard sprint and as i watched her she did something totally different from all the other runners that she was competing against they would all get up to the chalks, get set, ready to, to run the race when the gun went off. But everyone had their eyes down, looking at the ground, the feet right in front of them. She didn't. From the minute she got to the chalks, she had her eyes looking at the finish line, 100 yards down the track. She never took her eyes off that finish line she won the district championship she won the regional championship she won the state championship and it's my view she understood the importance of keeping your eye fixed on the end of the race in between it's going to be tough it's going to be a challenge But if you keep your eyes on the end of that race, you can walk on regardless of what happens. And that end of the race for us as believers and for the the unbeliever, I will say, is God himself. The book is Walk On from the Valley of Despair to the Mountaintop of Praise by Ron Bracey. Ron, can we take a few minutes and talk about your personal faith? Sure. How did you come to believe in Jesus Christ? After I was adopted, which was at the uh, age of five, I uh, grew up in a small rural community of Arkansas, Bethesda community. And uh, my parents, they went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. And of course, I went with them. About a year after I was uh, living with them and, and going through all of this, uh, one Sunday night, I and in the Baptist faith that I grew up in, 
you know, I walked down to the front of the church and I said, I wanted to be a, a member. I wanted to follow Jesus and I wanted to be a member. So I was baptized. How old were you at the time? I would have been about six, six. at that time. Gotcha. So then as I entered the teenage years and began doing things with all my friends and everything, they there was a, a summer revival for the youth. And so all our my friends and all of us, we were going to these revival, these uh, preaching services at night. And I remember several of my friends one night, I all went down to the front and I went with them. And uh, I was actually baptized the second time. And then as I grew through my teenage years and into my college years and into my young adulthood, church was just something that I did as I look back on those years. And then I got married. Uh, my wife uh, was a Christian woman. She uh, had a sister, an older sister, a very devout Christian woman. Judah's sister questioned me a lot. And I had all of these nice answers, philosophical answers. But uh, I wasn't living my life in any way close to what Scripture says, one who walks with God will live a kind of life. And then Vietnam came along, and I left my wife and my one-year-old daughter and went to fly in the war, uh, flying those uh, combat missions that are referred to. Before I left, Judith gave me a small Bible. And I carried that Bible with me on every mission I flew. And I began reading that Bible while I was over there, uh, sporadically reading it while I was there. In, in uh, I was stationed in Thailand. But for something in the back of my mind, I wanted that Bible with me in case something happened and I maybe got shot down or something. My mother died after a seven-year illness while I was in Vietnam. I had to come back for her funeral. I had friends that got killed, captured, oftentimes on missions that I had flown just like they flew, and I came through them alive. When I came back, we were sent to Europe, first to England and then to Germany. And we lived in a town called Zweibrücken, which in German means two bridges. I was asking a lot of questions. Why did my friend die? Why did my friend get captured? Why did my mother die? What, what is really important in life? I stood out on a hill one night looking at the valley and realizing that I had everything in the world. As a young military officer, I was climbing the ladder of success. I had everything, a wife, a child. I had everything. And I was as empty inside as if you took a glass of water and turned it upside down. There was nothing in my life that I could see that had ultimate purpose. And about the same time, three young college students came to Germany, and they were 
going all over Germany, preaching and singing. They had come out of what we know as the Ashbury Revival. They came to our town of Zweibrücken. And a couple of men had invited us to attend this little small church of about 10 people, 15 people. And so Judith and I were going, and these three college students came. There were two guys and a girl. And Libby sang a song every night entitled, Here Is My Life. And that song spoke of sonic booms, missiles hurled, war, death, and peace through God. We had them in our home several times during that week that they were there. They had something. I didn't. And on Friday night, I said, okay, God, here's my life. Whatever you want to do with it. And he gave me one verse. The first verse I ever memorized at that point in my life was that Jeremiah 33, 3, which says, and God said to Jeremiah, who was in a pit, by the way, when God said this to him, Jeremiah, call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. That has been my whole life. You know, your story speaks to the journey that God puts us on. You know, you started when you were six years old. I don't know how much you knew about the Bible or you knew about God and not questioning that the, the sincerity of, of that decision. Uh, but you started when you were six years old. Then you made a, you, you took another, another step. And I guess it was your late teens or early twenties. Is that right? Yes. And then, uh, and then you took, uh, you finally planted your flag in this town in Germany with with uh, the the this these group of this group of people that that you saw in them something that you were missing and you said God I give my life to you. It just goes to show that we're that God takes us through life in these in these in these moments these these line in the sand moments that we as we as we go through life and as we go through these moments we make these decisions for God to bring us closer to him a great story man really really good story have you ever since 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 kind of planning your flag ron how much have you really doubted the existence of god or the goodness of god i've never doubted it in that i would turn away from it have i questioned Sure. When, when Todd was killed, you know, prior to Todd's death, I had actually written uh, a pretty good portion of the book. And I was even starting to look for a publisher. And then I went five to six years when I didn't write a word. And then God was, he was taking me on this journey. For four years, uh, when after Todd was killed, I, my wife and I left our home, our jobs, and everything. I was pastoring a church in the St. Louis area, and uh, our daughter-in-law asked us to come and live with her. She decided to live here in San Antonio, 
And she asked us to come and live with her and help her, her, her with the girls as they got, got settled here. So we, we did. We got rid of everything, and, and we moved down here. We lived with her for nine months before we finally were able to find a house for ourselves. I couldn't find a job. I, I went back to school. I got a teacher uh, able to teach in Texas. Um, and there was nothing. And then I got a corporate job working for USAA, which is a military, big military. They, they uh, primarily deal with military people. And after there, I was there a couple of years, uh, and I tell this story in the book. I, I had a major illness and surgery, and uh, then I got another job in the corporate world as a manager for a communications company. There was just was nothing of any meaning in my life. I, there was just this emptiness because of Todd's death. Finally, one day, I said, God, I don't care what you do. Just get me out of this job. When God speaks, he works pretty quickly. I was uh, laid off from that job that afternoon. No and I literally walked out the doors of the company, and I did a Rocky Balboa salute at the top of the stairs. And I said to them when I was leaving the, the company, I said, I'll be teaching before the end of the year. The last three weeks before school was to start, without any word, all of a sudden, I was hired at this Christian, this private Christian school to teach. Wow. But here's what's, then here's where it really came alive. In November, I was teaching, I was teaching 10th graders. I taught philosophy and ethics. We were talking about Daniel of the Old Testament, the wise man that he was. And I was sharing with the students how God, Daniel had lost everything. Uh, his country had been destroyed, his, the, the city, the temple, his family. He had been taken captive, living in a foreign country. He had lost everything. I said to them, let me share you a, a similar kind of story from the New Testament. And I turned to Mark chapter 10, in which Jesus is talking to the disciples about following him. And Peter says, the impulsive Peter that he is, he says, God, we've left everything to follow you. In essence, he's saying, what am I going to get out of following you, Jesus? <laughs> Jesus said, Peter, you give up your family, your father, your mother, your children, your farms, your jobs. You follow me. I will repay you a hundredfold. And as I said the words hundredfold to my students, I froze, and they could see it. Mm. I literally just froze in what I was saying, and all of a sudden it hit me. God had given me one son, and as the sovereign God he is, he had taken my one son. He had given me a hundredfold. Mm. I had 110 students that year, and every year since then, I've had 100-fold students. My students are not students. It's not me and them. I look upon my students as my children, as my Todd. 
And that's when my four-year silence came to an end. And shortly thereafter, I started writing again. And I know that the book that people read (laughs) is not the book that I had started before all of that happened. Ron, as we wrap up, what would you say to that person that's listening to us right now that's not necessarily a believer in Jesus Christ, but they're right on faith's edge, making that choice to believe or not to believe in God? One thing I would say to them is be willing to ask questions. To be willing to pick up that book, the Bible, and to ask questions. And then to look at their life and see what kind, where their life is taking them. What have they experienced in life? What have they tried to, why have, what have they not experienced? I had, like I said, I had everything in the world, but I was totally empty. And I could see these other people that had a fullness about their life. And so I would say to that person, look at your life. What have you experienced? What do you see that you could very easily be missing? Be willing to risk what you think is a comfortable life that you have. Be willing to step out in faith, not knowing what's going to happen, but willing to trust the one who has said through century after century and people after people, if you'll walk on in me, I will take you through whatever you're experiencing right now. I don't think we can say anything more than that. Ron Bracey, the book is Walk On. From the Valley of Despair to the Mountaintop of Praise. My friend, you have an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Joe, thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate what you do with your ministry to these countless people that you touch with your ministry. And I appreciate the opportunity just to be a part of it. That means a lot to me. Take care, brother. Ron's website is walkonbook.com and he can be found on Facebook. These links can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 123. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 123. I love bringing you engaging conversations about faith. If this show entertained you, encouraged you, informed you, or brought value to you in any way whatsoever, will you consider using any Amazon link at onfaithsedge.com? We're going to get a modest commission from the purchase, but it won't cost you a penny more. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Ron Bracey for being with us. And thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me and you mean a lot to the show. Remember, God is real. He loves you. And so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you. 